This morning I want to speak about a topic that makes everybody a little bit nervous. This is one that kind of goes along with what we've been talking about the last couple of weeks, talking about church membership, talking about being involved in the kingdom, about being a part of the body of Christ. And today I want to speak about where is our home? Earth is not my home. Though we live here today, we must recognize that earth is not my home. And we are going to talk in this regard in the area of our giving and in the area of our stewardship. And um, we're going to do most of the speaking is through Randy Alcorn and the video that we've been playing on Wednesday nights. And this one we did this past Wednesday night was such a, I think, a good, solid explanation of why we give and the understanding of how that translates into eternity that I really want to spend time today speaking about that. And uh, I believe this is timely. Um, I believe that the Lord would have us to consider our stewardship and our giving every year about this time of the year. I think it's, you know, being relatively early in the year, I think it's wise that we continue to look at our priorities and where do we place our trust. And probably a good way to know where you place your trust is where you place your money and where you place your resources. Do you know that Christ spoke a lot about money? In fact, do you know that he spoke more about money than he did heaven and hell combined? If you research the scripture, and if you go through and look at it, Christ spoke more about money and possessions than he did about heaven and hell. That doesn't mean heaven and hell is not important, by the way. But what it does mean is that maybe the way you look at your possessions and your money may determine where you go, heaven or hell. Think about that a little bit. He, God's pretty serious about some of the things that he talks about. And our attitude toward our possessions, our earthly things, are, are really a good indicator to us about where our viewpoint of home really is. See, if I'm really focused on the things here in this life, if I'm really tied up with the things here about what I have and what I don't have, then I would venture to say that I'm not giving much thought to the things that come after. If I'm so concerned about what I have or don't have now, I'm probably not too concerned about what's going to happen when I take my last breath. I'm probably not too concerned about eternity. And I know that's hard sometimes for us to discuss, to understand that and to maybe even admit that. But for us, if we're going to be the church that Christ is coming back for, because he's coming back for a church that is spotless, that is without blemish. And part of that is our stewardship. Part of that is our willingness to obey and to trust in the area of our giving and our finances and our resources. Our memory verse for this week and our text for today is going to be Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21. You can read this with me. In fact, it would be good to read it with me. It says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourself treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So I would encourage you this week to, to take seriously and memorize these two or three scriptures here, two verses. 
And let it sink into your heart as to truly, where is your heart? Where is your treasure? Luke chapter 16, verse 10 through 12, a couple other passages that Jesus talked about our money and our resources. It talks to us about how we're trusted with little and how we're trusted with much. Let's read that. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if, you've, if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? Isn't it interesting how he draws a corollary here that if, we're, if we have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, then how will we be trusted with true riches? If there's a true rich, can there be a false rich? There must be. Why would he, want, why would he call it true riches if there isn't a false riches? So if we are not able to handle our worldly wealth obediently and in good standing with the Lord, do you think there may be a problem? Do you think there may be a, a, a consequence later in our life, maybe eternally, where we may not be able to handle the true riches of God's grace in heaven? Now I'm just asking you to think about that a little bit. Think about what these verses mean and why he says them. He doesn't say them just to write them. But truly, the Lord, when He speaks, He speaks with good purpose. And so therefore, I, I must really consider how am I being trustworthy in handling the worldly wealth and, and am I really then able going to, going to be able to handle the true riches that, that He wants to give me. See, then He goes on to speak a little bit stronger in verses 13 and 15 through 15 in that same chapter. It says, for no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees, who loved money, heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. Now, when we started the service this morning, we read in Philippians chapter 4 about how we are to think about the things that are true and trustworthy and good and, and all those things. And those are very worthy to be thought of. So, and when we value the things that God values, they're good things. They're things that give us peace beyond understanding. Those are things that give us assurance in this world that's topsy-turvy. But if I'm valuing the things of my own finances, if I'm value, valuing the things of this earth higher than the things of God, then they are detestable to Him. Detestable is not a nice word. Detestable is not something that you really want God to think about you. You don't want, the God think that, you don't want God to think that you're detestable. You want God to think that you're worthy because of your commitment to Jesus. So when we think of Jesus saying a lot about money, that we should not place value on money, see, we really look at 
more importantly, it's the love of the money. It's not that money is bad. I want you to understand that. Money is not bad in itself. It's like a gun is not bad in itself. There's nothing evil about money. There's nothing evil about a gun. But how, it's gun, how a gun is used or how money is used can be evil. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 through 10. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we, have, for we brought nothing into the world and we take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Here's this verse. For the love of money, the love of money, not money, but the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and have pierced themselves with many griefs. Now, can you go back at all in your life, personally, and think of the things maybe where you got a little bit off balance and maybe you were searching or seeking or pursuing things that maybe were more for the love of money that might have brought griefs into your life? I heard an interesting saying that we can choose our choices, but we can't choose our consequences. You can choose your choices, but you don't choose the consequences. But the consequences come as a part of it. So this morning, what is your attitude? What is my attitude? What is our attitude towards our money and our possessions? And understand that they're very important to God. They're very important to Jesus. Otherwise, he wouldn't have spoke about money so much. And again, it's not really the fact that the money is the bad thing at all, but really it's a heart condition, isn't it? He's really looking at how much do you trust me? How much are you willing to place yourself into my hands versus your own ability to take care of yourself through your money? or through your possessions, or through your stature, through your own ability to make money. I want to take the next number of minutes now, and I want to watch this video from Randy Elkhorn, and it's talking about the, the treasure principles that he's put together, or that he's dug up, basically, from the Word of God. And, and it really is talking to us about where is your home today? Heaven is our home, not earth. There's a, a handout, you can follow that, and there's some questions in that. I'd, I'd like you just to um, maybe think through the questions as we go through this little video today, and then we'll talk a little bit more when we wrap it up. In this chapter, we'll explore some of the most common things that keep us from giving. I think it's one of the most important chapters in the entire series, and I think you'll find this very helpful and challenging. I feel like we are in a post-Christian society in America today. So giving is not taught like it was uh, two or three or four decades ago. And uh, when it's not taught, people get out of the habit of doing it, and they just don't do it. And I think lack of giving uh, shows a lack of faith on the part of Christians. They just don't trust God enough to believe that if they give it away, that he can still meet their needs on a weekly or daily basis. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. We know that Christ commands us to give, and we know he offers us great rewards for giving. So why is it so hard to give? The world has a lifestyle 
that it tells us what we should wear, what we should drive, how we should live, how we should spend our money, and sometimes we as Christians get caught up in that. There are many roadblocks to giving. Unbelief, insecurity, pride, idolatry, desire for power, and control. The raging current of our culture, and often our churches, makes it hard to swim upstream. It's considered normal to keep far more than we give. That's clearly indicative of what happens. The more money people make, the lower the percentage of their income they give. And uh, it's a sad but true fact that that holds true among Christians as well. Randy is convinced that the greatest deterrent to giving is this, the illusion that earth is our home. This leads us to the next key to the treasure principle. Principle number three, heaven, not earth, is my home. When we leave this earth, none of this will matter. Um, everything that we think is beautiful now, everything that we hold dear to now, things that we, we put a lot of value on, it's, it's, it's going to be nothing. When we get to heaven, it's just going to be amazing. I think that we don't focus enough on, on eternity. I don't think we focus enough on what God really has in store for us. The Bible says we're pilgrims, strangers, aliens on earth. We're ambassadors representing our true country. Our citizenship is in heaven. We're citizens of a better country, a heavenly one. If this is my temporary home, I, I want to budget how much I'm going to use to improve this home. Because it's like a vacation home. You don't invest a lot of money in some place you're going to spend one week a year. Instead, you invest your money in your real home, and that's what giving does. Where we choose to store our treasures depends largely on where we think our home is. Suppose your home is in England, but you're visiting America for three months, living in a hotel. You're told that you can't bring anything back to England on your flight home, but you can earn money and mail deposits back to your bank in England. Would you fill your hotel room with expensive furniture and wall hangings? Of course not. You'd send your money where your home is. You would spend only what you needed on the temporary residence, sending your treasures ahead so they'd be waiting for you when you got home. You know, it's sad to see people in the church who are thinking that they have to, you know, catch up with the world and have to have this and have to have that. And they're going in debt and they're being enslaved to their material possessions. Now, the Bible tells us that, uh, you know, we're not going to keep anything, we're not going to keep anything that we have here on earth. And um, so there's no reason to, to store things up here. When Brandy's daughters got married, friends and family set aside their busy schedules and traveled in from all over the country. When the king's wedding day comes, the universe will screech to a halt. Nothing else will be on heaven's calendar. The groom from Nazareth and his beloved bride will take center stage. Every day of our lives, we're traveling toward the wedding day, our wedding. It's closer today than it was yesterday. Our bridegroom, the carpenter, is building a place for us in heaven. Everything we send on ahead will be waiting there for us. It's our gift to him, but in his generosity, he will give those treasures back to us. Um, there's a scripture that says, He who has not been faithful in the use of worldly wealth cannot be trusted with the true riches. And so when you learn how to have faith and trust God, 
then he can trust you with other things. Jesus is a builder by trade. He's also omniscient and omnipotent, qualities that come in handy on a building project. Don't you think that the home he's been building for us the last 2,000 years is something incredible? Paradoxically, our home is a place we've never been, but it's the place we were made for, the place made for us. If we would let this reality sink in, it would forever change the way we think and the way we live. We'd stop laying up treasures in our earthly hotel rooms and start sending more ahead to our true home. We have to constantly be on our guard not to to play into the hands of the advertisers and buy everything that we see and want, but certainly things that we don't necessarily need. Take a ride with me. After a few miles, we turn off the road, pass through a gate, and fall in line behind a pickup truck. The vehicle ahead is filled with computers, stereo systems, furniture, appliances, fishing gear, and toys. Higher and higher we climb until we reach the end of a parking lot. There, the driver unloads his cargo. You've got to find out what's going on. You scramble out of the car and peer over the precipice. At the bottom of the cliff is a giant pit filled with stuff. Finally, you understand. This is a landfill, a junkyard, the final resting place of the things in our lives. Sooner or later, everything we own ends up here. Christmas and birthday presents, cars, boats, and hot tubs, clothes, stereos, and barbecues, the treasures that children quarreled about, friendships were lost over, honesty was sacrificed for, and marriages broke up over, all end up here. Randy recommends taking a family field trip to a junkyard. It's a powerful object lesson. Ever seen that bumper sticker, he who dies with the most toys wins? Millions of people act as if it were true. The more accurate saying is, he who dies with the most toys still dies and never takes his toys with him. That is totally asinine. That's materialistic, and that's not what we as Christians are striving for. God tells us time and time again that he is the benefactor. He is the one that's going to be giving us of our time, our talents, our gifts, our health. And it's a blessing when we, in turn, give what God is giving us to others. And we are rewarded when we do this here on earth, and he tells us we'll be rewarded in heaven. When we die after devoting our lives to acquiring things, we don't win, we lose. We move into eternity, but our toys stay behind, filling junkyards. The bumper sticker couldn't be more wrong. Five minutes after I die, what will I wish I had given away? Or what missionary would I wish I have supported or church or a ministry? Uh, because within five minutes, I'm gonna, and instantly, I'm going to be seeing my Lord. And I'm wondering what he's going to say. Will he say, well done, good, thy faithful servant? Think of it in terms of a dot and a line. Our lives have two phases. First, we have a dot. And then there's the line that extends from that dot. Our present life on earth is the dot. It begins and it ends. It's brief. But from that dot extends a line that goes on forever. That line is eternity, which Christians will spend in heaven. Now, right now, we're living in the dot. But what are we living for? The short-sighted person lives for the dot. The person with perspective lives for the line. 
This earth and my time here is the dot. My beloved bridegroom, the coming wedding, the great reunion, and my eternal home in the new heaven and the new earth, they're all on the line. That's our next key. Treasure principle number four. I should live not for the dot, but for the line. The person who lives for the dot lives for treasures on earth that end up in junkyards. The person who lives for the line lives for treasures in heaven that will never end. Giving is living for the line. We'll each part with our money. The only question is when. We do have a choice whether to part with it later. But we have a choice whether to part with it now also. We can keep earthly treasures for the moment, and we may derive some temporary enjoyment from them. But if we give them away, we'll enjoy eternal treasures that will never be taken from us. You never know when God's going to teach you something that will bless your heart. I remember the first time this happened to my wife and I, we were sitting in a restaurant, and we looked across the aisle at another table, and there was a young couple there. It looked like they were probably in their mid-twenties, and they were praying. The man was holding the lady's hand, both hands across the table, and I watched him. They prayed. He prayed and prayed. I thought, my goodness, that's sweet. I looked at my wife, and I said, let's pay for their dinner. So we called their waitress over to our table. And I said, we want to buy their meal. She said, oh, do you know them? I said, no, we don't know them. She said, well, why are you doing it? I said, well, let me tell you. You bring me their ticket, and I'll explain it to you. So she brought me their ticket, and I said, I want to tell you something. I said, we watched them pray over their meal. And when they asked for their ticket, I want you to tell them that Jesus paid their meal, that Jesus heard their prayer, and that Jesus had a fellow Christian pay for their meal. The waitress looked back, and she had tears dropping off her cheeks. She said, I've been a waitress for over 20 years. I've never had anybody do something like you're doing, and I appreciate it. We left, and it was a 55-mile drive home. But my wife and I rejoiced all the way. That couple never even saw us in all likelihood. They don't know who paid for the meal, but the waitress was to tell them that Jesus had a fellow Christian pay their debt. Jim Elliott, a missionary who was killed by the very people he was ministering to, said he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. If you hear those words and think, oh, he was one of those super spiritual missionary types who didn't think about gain, then you missed the whole point. Read it again. Gain was precisely what Jim Elliott was thinking about. He just wanted the kind of gain he could not lose. He wanted his treasures in heaven. Live for the line, not for the dot. A PBS television program called Affluenza addresses what it calls the modern-day plague of materialism. The program claims the average American shops six hours a week while spending 40 minutes with his children. By age 20, we've seen one million commercials. Recently, more Americans declared bankruptcy than graduated from college. In 90% of divorce cases, arguments about money play a prominent role. What should strike us about this program is that it doesn't argue against materialism on a moral basis, but a pragmatic one. Material wealth doesn't make us happy. Listen to some of the wealthiest people of their day. W.H. Vanderbilt said of his tremendous wealth, the care of $200 million is enough to kill anyone, 
there is no pleasure in it. John Jacob Astor, the fur tycoon, said, I am the most miserable man on earth. John D. Rockefeller, who created Standard Oil, said of his great wealth, I have made many millions, but they have brought me no happiness. Andrew Carnegie, known as the King of Steel, said that millionaires seldom smile. The great automaker Henry Ford stated, I was happier when doing a mechanic's job. You've read the stories of lottery winners who are more miserable a few years after winning than they were before. The wealth they dreamed would bring them happiness did not. Not even close. You know, the world tells us just through about every possible way that we should buy things. I think a lot of people have bought into American culture as being the norm instead of biblical standards. At the airport, a friend of Randy saw an acquaintance who looked troubled. What's the matter, he asked. The man sighed. I thought I was finally going to have a weekend to myself, but now I have to go supervise repairs on my house in Florida. Dejected, he sat waiting to take off in his private jet. Here's a man with everything he needs, with what most people dream of, yet he couldn't even enjoy his weekend. He was enslaved by his possessions. We think we own our possessions, but too often they own us. Nothing makes a journey more difficult than a heavy backpack filled with nice but unnecessary things. Pilgrims travel light. You know, it's sad to see people in the church who are thinking that they have to, you know, catch up with the world and have to have this and have to have that. And they're going in debt and they're being enslaved to their material possessions. Randy and his wife have lived in their house for 23 years. For the first nine years, they had ugly orange carpet. They never cared what happened to it. The day they finally installed a new carpet, someone lit a candle. The match head fell off and burned a hole in the carpet. The day before, they said that they wouldn't have cared. Now they were upset. Were they better off with their nice new possession? Every item we buy is one more thing to think about, talk about clean, repair, rearrange, fret over, and replace when it goes bad. Let's say you get a television absolutely free. Now what? You hook up the antenna or subscribe to a cable service. You buy a new VCR or DVD player. You rent movies. You get surround sound speakers. You buy a recliner so you can watch your programs in comfort. This all costs money but it also takes large amounts of time, energy, and attention. The time you devote to your TV and its accessories means less time for communication with family, reading the word, praying, opening your home, or ministering to the needy. So what's the true cost of that free television? Acquiring a possession may push me into redefining my priorities. If I buy a boat, I want to justify my purchase by using the boat, which may mean frequent weekends away from my family or church, making me unavailable to attend my daughter's basketball game or teaching a Sunday school class or working in the nursery. The problem isn't the boat or the television. The problem is me. It's a law of life, the tyranny of things. Solomon makes a series of insightful statements in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 10 through 15. I'll follow each with a paraphrase. Whoever loves money never has money enough. 
In other words, the more you have, the more you want. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. The more you have, the less you're satisfied. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. The more you have, the more people, including the government, will come after it. And what benefit are they to the owner except to feast his eyes on them? The more you have, the more you realize it does you no good. The sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of a rich man permits him no sleep. The more you have, the more you have to worry about. I have seen a grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to the harm of its owner. The more you have, the more you can hurt yourself by holding on to it. Or wealth lost through some misfortune. The more you have, the more you have to lose. Naked a man comes from his mother's womb, and as he comes, so he departs. He takes nothing from his labor that he can carry in his hand. The more you have, the more you'll leave behind. I don't see um, wealth as um, keeping you from having cancer. I don't see wealth as uh, saving your kids or keeping your marriage going. Uh, the only thing that can do that is a relationship with God. As the wealthiest man on earth, Solomon learned that affluence didn't satisfy. All it did was give him greater opportunity to chase more mirages. People tend to run out of money before mirages, so they cling to the myth that things they can't afford will satisfy them. Solomon's money never ran out. He tried everything, saying, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. Solomon's conclusion? When I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Why do we keep getting fooled? Because our hearts yearn for treasure here and now. We're tempted to imagine that the earthly treasures we see around us are the genuine items rather than mere shadows of the real treasures. But earthly treasures can become heavenly ones. A.W. Tozer said, As base a thing as money often is, it yet can be transmuted into everlasting treasure. It can be converted into food for the hungry and clothing for the poor. It can keep a missionary actively winning lost men to the light of the gospel and thus transmute itself into heavenly values. Any temporal possession can be turned into everlasting wealth. Whatever is given to Christ is immediately touched with immortality. If affluenza is the disease, what's the cure? If materialism is the poison, what's the antidote? Paul offers an answer. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Notice how Paul brings us right back to the treasure principle. When he speaks of giving to lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, he's no doubt thinking directly of Christ's words in Matthew chapter 6. Randy likes to carry a little card in his wallet. On one side it says, God owns every treasure. 
I'm his investment manager. Under this are three scriptures. The other side says, God wants me to use earthly treasures to store up heavenly treasures. Underneath are Christ's words in Matthew 6 and Paul's in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Randy feels that keeping this card near his cash is a powerful reminder of what is true. Paul says that being generous and willing to share and being rich in good deed allows us to take hold of the life that is truly life as opposed to what? The second class so-called life of materialism. That leads us to the fifth key to the treasure principle. Treasure principle number five. Giving is the only antidote to materialism. Say you go shopping and you find a really good deal. And you were planning on spending $25 on something and you get it for 15 Well, why not use that extra $10 to invest in eternity instead of just thinking it's profit for yourself and figuring out what else you can buy? The act of giving is a vivid reminder that it's all about God, not about us. It's saying, I am not the point. He is the point. He does not exist for me. I exist for him. God's money has a higher purpose than my affluence. Giving is a joyful surrender to a greater person and a greater agenda. Giving affirms Christ's lordship. It dethrones me and exalts him. It breaks the chains of mammon that would enslave me. As long as I still have something, I believe I own it. But when I give it away, I relinquish the control, power, and prestige that come with wealth. At the moment of release, the light turns on, the magic spell is broken, my mind clears, and I recognize God as my owner, myself as servant, and other people as intended beneficiaries of what God has entrusted to me. Giving doesn't strip me of vested interests. Rather, it shifts my vested interests from earth to heaven, from myself to God. Only giving breaks affluenza's fever. Only giving defies the spirit of entitlement. Only giving breaks me from the gravitational hold of money and possessions. Giving shifts me to a new center of gravity, heaven. You know, and, and when he's first, the other things aren't hard to, to, to let go of. Or the other things aren't hard to, to, to make secondary. But, but, but in some cases, I, I guess I would have to question, is he really first? You know, because if I can't make time to, to make a telephone call, or if I can't make time to, to, to visit someone if they're sick, or if I can't make time to, to listen to somebody's problem, or if I can't make time to, to help out in the nursery on Sunday, or all of us have 24, hour, 24 hours a day. And if I can't make time to do those things, you know, you know I, I, I question, you know, am I really committed to Christ? I mean, is, I mean, is not Christ, you know, speaking to me and asking me well, to do these things? And if he's asking me, um, and I'm committed to him, then, then I should be more than willing to do those things. After exposing the Laodicean spiritual poverty hidden beneath their wealth, Jesus offered them real treasures. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich. Peter tells us that when Christ returns, the world will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Does that sound depressing? It shouldn't. It would be depressing if we couldn't use our present lives and resources to make a difference for eternity, but we can. C.S. Lewis put it this way, we are half-hearted creatures, 
fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. You know, giving shouldn't be a chore. You know, it, there's actually joy in giving. And in fact, you know, we try to pass it on to our kids. And it's a blessing to us to see our kids get involved also in giving. You know, like whether it be a piece of candy to, a, you know, to our neighbor or something like that. It's just, um, it's exciting to see, you know, the joy that one can have when giving. Even many Christians have settled for a life of unsatisfying material acquisitions, like making mud pies in a slum. There's something so much better than anything the world can offer, eternal treasures and exhilarating joy. You want these treasures and this joy, don't you? But maybe you have some practical questions about giving, or you're not sure where to start. Let's hear from some friends about how they discovered the joy of giving. We didn't always have the resources that we have today. When we were uh, young, newly married, and started having our family, we've raised three sons, and God put a call on my husband's heart to preach. While I was in Bible college, had three children, three sons and a wife, and we've been given some hot dogs. Um, we only had four left when we were out in the backyard one afternoon with Suzanne and the three sons. The neighbor boy came up. We sat down to eat, and the little neighbor boy appeared in the yard, and he was a very unkempt little guy. He belonged to a fellow that belonged to a motorcycle gang, and we were told when we moved in the community that, you know, to stay away from them. And she gave away her hot dog because she knew the, son, the, the other boy was hungry. It was like 11.30, and he said he didn't have any breakfast that day. And a neighbor saw that action of us being able to give, and he walks over to the fence and he says, I saw what you did. And it really scared me because I thought I had done something that had offended him. So he said, come here. And he opens the gate. He's standing right by. He leads me just a few feet to his back garage and opens the door there and hands me a baking powder can, about a quart-sized can, and it was full of money. But he uh, was used of God to give to us uh, over a hundred dollars in change that he had without us even asking. He said that every time he got back from the grocery store, he put his quarters and nickels and dimes in there. And it was a tremendous answer to prayer. God just intervened and gave it to us, and we were able to buy groceries and continue our study of God's Word. Hopefully, you're overcoming the roadblocks to giving. There was a great deal of information in this segment, so let's cover some of the highlights. Number one, heaven, not earth, is my home. The Bible clearly tells us in Hebrews 11 that we are strangers, aliens, pilgrims on this earth. Our citizenship is in heaven, so we're not to get too attached to the things of this earth. Even though heaven is a place we've never been, it's a place we were made for. Jesus is preparing a place for us in heaven. Let's not forget that the creator of the universe has been working on our home for the last 2,000 years. We can't imagine just how wonderful it will be. Number two, I should not live for the dot, but for the line. Remember that our lives have two phases. The dot, which represents our life on earth, 
and the line which represents eternity. The person who lives for the dot lives for treasures on earth that end up in junkyards. The person who lives for the line lives for treasures in heaven that will never end. Giving is living for the line. Number three, let's not become obsessed with our possessions. The PBS television show called Affluenza addresses what it calls the modern-day plague of materialism, the chasing of the almighty dollar, which leads to nothing but despair, broken families, broken friendships, and financial ruin. It takes time away from the most important things in life, God, family, and friends. Number four, the tyranny of things. The more things we own, the more things actually own us. Every item we buy is one more thing to think about, talk about, clean, repair, rearrange, fret over, and replace when it goes bad. Number five, don't chase after the wind. In other words, things are nothing more than mirages. King Solomon was the wealthiest man who ever lived. He had anything anyone could ever desire on earth and discovered that it was all meaningless. Let's seek God's will and we'll have everything that really matters. Number five, giving is the only antidote to materialism. The act of giving is a vivid reminder that it's all about God and not about us. God is the point. I am not the point. I was created for him. He was not created for me. And number six, don't settle for a life of unsatisfying material acquisitions like mud pies in the slums. God wants you to have eternal treasures and exhilarating joy that comes through giving. You know, I know that the, uh, that the church quite often is often criticized for speaking about money and that all we want is your money. And if you talk to anyone that is not a churchgoer, <laughs> they will say, sooner or later, if you talk to them, they're going to say, well, one of the reasons I don't go to church is because this is all about money. But do you know, though, the mo one of the most important things we can do as a church beyond salvation is to talk the truth of God's Word? Do you agree with that? I mean, is there anybody here that doesn't want to hear truth? Because, you know, the truth at the end of the day is the only thing that lives. Truth at the end of the day is the only thing that matters. And if Jesus, thought, if Jesus thinks money is important, then so should we think money is important. And for us not to talk to you and not to teach about giving, godly giving, it would be a travesty. It would be ungodly for us not to talk to you about giving in the perspective the way that Jesus wants to speak about it. So after you've watched this this morning, I'm not sure where you're at in your area of giving. I don't have any idea who gives what in this church. I never see it. I never see it. And, this is, and that's the way I like it. But as you watch this video today, how has it challenged you to give in a new light? Has anything changed in your thinking? Has anything been challenged in the way you think about giving today a little bit differently than maybe it was before? Have you been living your life here with a closed fist thinking that this is mine and I can't let go of it? Or, I, or, have you been, or can you think about living your life with an open hand to say, God, what you give, I'm going to give back. I'm just a channel. I'm a reservoir of your blessings. Whatever you give to me, I'm going to bless others with. And the more you give, the more I'm going to bless. The, the man said it early on that 
it is very it's very um, much the more you give, the harder it is to give more. <laughs> you know, it's one thing to give a tenth of a dollar, that's ten cents. But to give a tenth of a thousand dollars or to give a tenth of a ten thousand dollars, all of a sudden it's like, wow, can I really give that much to the church? Well, do you realize who the real benefactor of your life is? Is it yourself or is it God? Who really is responsible? Who really has the ability? And then finally, I just want to challenge you with how might you begin to apply today what you've learned? Again, I'm not looking, we're not looking for an emotional appeal. What we're looking for is pragmatic teaching and doctrine and understanding the significance of godly giving, godly purposes, godly truth. Amen? That's what it's all about. And if we didn't speak truth, then we would be wrong. We would be in error. Would you stand with me? And let's just pray. And let's just ask the Lord to continue to work with us and continue to, to motivate us in the proper uh, priorities of life. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you, Lord, that you are truth and you are integrity and you are authenticity and you are pure and holy. And God, as we try to line ourselves up to be more Christ-like, we truly want those same things in our life. We want those same characteristics. And some of it, much of it, is based upon our possessions and how we look at what you've blessed us with. God, I pray that for all of us here this morning that, that have much, which we all do in all honesty, we're very blessed. God, help us to have an open hand with it, I pray. Help our hearts to be open that we would be willing to give back to others that need it, give back to you, give to the kingdom, that we would lay our treasures ahead, that clearly that we would be, put, be putting our trust in you, which would be uh, synonymous with putting our treasures in heaven and not hoarding them to ourselves here on earth. God, I pray that you give us the proper challenge. I pray that you give us a proper motivation. And I pray, Lord, that you would bring the blessing upon blessing that would come as a result of proper understanding of this principle. Thank you for this day. We pray that you'd bless us as we go. In Jesus' name, amen.